You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our monster talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. When you're doing historical research about weird topics such as monsters, mysteries, ghosts, or UFOs and the like, One of the most common places to look when going for primary sources is the initial coverage contemporary newspapers. Really, those tend to be secondary sources since they're usually reporting on the accounts of the primary sources, but they often contain first-hand quotes and supporting evidence. But what are you supposed to conclude when you run into reports like these? In 1884, near the Canadian village of Yale, a group of railroad men succeeded in capturing a creature which may truly be called half-man and half-beast, Jacko, as the creature has been called by his capturers, is something of the gorilla type standing about 4 feet 7 inches in height and weighing 127 pounds. He has long, black, strong hair and resembles a human being with one exception. His entire body, excepting his hands and feet, are covered with glossy hair about one inch long. Or this story from Tombstone, Arizona in 1890. A winged monster resembling a huge alligator with an extremely elongated tail and an immense pair of wings was found on the desert between Whetstone and the Huachuca Mountains last Sunday by two ranchers who were returning home from the Huachucas. 
The creature was evidently greatly exhausted by a long flight and when discovered was able to fly but a short distance at the time. Or this 1897 story from Aurora, Texas. About four o'clock this morning, early risers of Aurora, Texas were astonished by the sudden appearance of an airship flying low over town. In the north part of town, it collided with Judge J.S. Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a tremendous explosion. Parts scattered over acres of ground. The windmill, a watering trough, and the judge's flower garden were destroyed. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. I am, I must admit, a weird mystery junkie. I love looking into weird stories and news items, but a disappointing fact is that consuming news content is fraught with challenges when it comes to determining whether contents are true or not. Spoiler alert, this has always been the case. But of course it has. When you meet someone who tells you a story, on some level, you know that what they're telling you might be true or it might be false. You likely have friends who you assess to be sober and reliable witnesses, and others who you know like to sprinkle embellishments on their stories, like add-on toppings in a Froyo shop. The spectrum of devotion to accuracy in journalism is similar. In this wide-ranging interview with Dr. James Mueller, we talk about the history of newspapers and how stories like the ones in the intro figure into the overall arc of journalistic intent. I really enjoyed this conversation, but I want to lead in with a couple of observations. First, the big takeaway is that understanding news reporting requires work on the part of the reader. If you listen to Monster Talk regularly, you know that the subtext to almost everything we cover is that no matter how fun a story is, no matter how exciting, no matter how plausible... It really is incumbent upon each of us to apply critical thinking to determine if we should believe something or not. Some media outlets have tried to brand themselves around being reliable and trustworthy. But slogans and catchy tunes aside, that doesn't make it so. You have to think for yourself. Second, we live in a political world. I tend to try and avoid politics and religion in the show, but regardless of your political views, and, and this is a good time to remind ourselves that there are more than two political views, and with this being an election year, it's not uncommon for nuance to get tossed right out the window. But as I was saying, regardless of your political views, the reality is that they form an inescapable backdrop to historical narratives, and they're going to pop up in this interview. I think our tone here is academic and detached, but if you feel like you can't take another minute of politics and are coming to this episode to escape, this may not be the right episode. With those caveats and spoilers out of the way, we welcome Dr. James Mueller, Associate Dean of Journalism at the University of North Texas. He's the author of three books and has a fourth on the way, and those are Shooting Arrows and Slinging Mud, Custer, the Press, and the Little Bighorn, Tag Teaming the Press, and Towel Snapping the Press, and I'll put a link to all those in the show notes. He's also a member of the American Journalism Historians Association, and he joins us today to talk about the history of newspapers and journalism and how to contextualize weird stories in the news. 
Monster Dog. Today we're welcoming Dr. Jim Mueller, but on Amazon he'd be James Mueller, Associate Dean of Journalism at the University of North Texas, and he is the author of three books about journalism. One's called Shooting Arrows and Slinging Mud, which is about mm-hmm. Custer and the press. And one is called Tag Teaming the Press, which appears to be about the Clintons. And the other is Towel Snapping the Press, which is about the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And I imagine those are all about the relationship between media and message control in that context of those, those three topics, which is interesting also because Karen and I, not too long back, went to the University of Texas in Lubbock, right? Texas Tech, uh, Texas, Texas Tech in Lubbock. Sorry, yeah. I went to the I went to University of Texas in San Marcos, and then I also went to Texas Tech within months of each other, and I get a little confused. Sorry. So we went to uh. Texas Tech <laughs> in Lubbock and had a wonderful time visiting with the uh, College of Communications there. We should name drop David Perlmutter. That's right. That uh, the, their dean David Perlmutter is a friend of the show and uh, has mm-hmm. been on the show, and we are very interested in this. Not just for this historical context, but because messaging and communication are such a big part of how these kind of stories are shared. And the media is one of the many conduits through which all of these kind of mystery stories get passed around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I gave sure. you a little prep ahead of time that one of the things I wanted to talk about was just basically the history of journalism. And I, uh, I as, a, as a lecturing professor, you probably could just talk for a full hour. But if you, if you could sort of break it down and give us sort of a background on the history of journalism and how it sort of changed over time to now? That I know that's a big-ass question. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big one because yeah. it depends on how far you want to go back. Because mm-hmm. there's out in Arizona or someplace, there's a newspaper rock where you have these pictographs that people would put messages on uh, to let people know, you know, whether there were bears around or what have you. You know, and so that could be kind of an early form of journalism thousands of years ago. Wow. But Yeah, maybe not that uh, back that far. Yeah. <laughs> extra, extra. No, not that far, okay. <laughs> yeah, you don't want the full sixteen week course. Okay. Yeah. I thought if we, um, we started with maybe the broadsheets. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably a good good place to start because I assume we're we're mostly interested in American media, although you did mention other media, but maybe a, a good place to kinda the conversation will be starting when the first U.S. newspaper hit, and that was in 1690. And um, it only lasted uh, one issue before it was shut down. Uh, the advertising? Couldn't get enough advertising? What? <laughs> no, they, they ran afoul of the government, Oh, believe it or not. But even then, um, the press got into controversies, and uh, one of the reasons why they, they were shut down were they had a story about uh, Native American tribes who were allied to the British at that time, torturing prisoners. And so the uh, government felt that was bad press. And then another story insulted the French king, which uh, by extension in, insulted all royalty, so so they didn't like that. So that uh, newspaper had to go. But from the very beginning, the American press, I guess, has been kind of challenging and kind of skeptical. And... Uh, always trying to deal with with things that would be of of interest to the general public. But when we get into the the colonial era, the revolutionary press era, and so forth, the press is really interested mostly in politics. And you don't really get into interesting stuff like some of the things that that your your, uh, website talks about until the 1830s, 
when newspapers became more commercial and you had what was called the penny press era. And one of the first monster kind of stories was what they call now the Great Moon Hoax, which was in 1835 in the New York Sun. Oh, yeah. Where they actually... So you're familiar with that? I am, but if you don't mind talking about it, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was when uh, the New York Sun, which, again, um, it was an era when uh, Benjamin Day started it off by coming up with a new model of the press. And instead of talking about politics <laughs> and should we kick out the British and that kind of thing, it was more just to sell as many newspapers as you can, and he reduced the price to a penny, thus the penny press, so more people could uh, buy it. And people who were working folk and not necessarily just interested in politics, politics. And uh, they ran one story where they had looked at, they said, a Scottish scientific journal um, where a guy had published a story uh, that he had had a, had a telescope, was looking at the moon and found these bat-like creatures. And it created a bit of a sensation and other newspapers picked up the story, and uh, eventually it was exposed as a hoax, but the New York Sun never denied it, uh, or admitted, rather, they never admitted that it was a hoax. And in fact, one of the editors said, well, you know, people appreciated it because they appreciated good writing. (laughs) So, I think, you know, the press was much looser in those days of the 19th century, and continuing on until journalism really started to be professionalized in the uh, 20th century, and it took a lot of the fun out of it. So I think in the American press, today you see a lot less uh, stories where you would have presentations of hoaxes or presentations of odd phenomena as if they really could be real. You don't see that a lot in the mainstream press in the United States. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, is that because, well, so I'm going to accept your premise and say, okay. uh, <laughs> is that because those stories have the taint of tabloid journalism? And maybe we should probably talk about what the difference is between tabloid journalism and regular journalism, because I'm not sure I even know now that I've said it out loud. Yeah, if you say media or you say uh, journalism, it's really hard to get a handle on the definition of it. At journalism schools, professional journalists, we tend to think of you know the mainstream press, like the New York Times, Dallas Morning News, ABC, CBS. But then there are all other kinds of publications that people read, you know, the supermarket tabloids and tabloid TV and so forth. And I think a lot of the public just lump them, them all together. But people who work in the, the mainstream press, yes, would see those type of stories as maybe something that would be the weekly world news or something like that. And so would shy away from it or would only write it um, with a very serious kind of context and explore it. And um, I think, you know, in the 19th century, there weren't journalism schools. People were not professionally trained, and there are no codes of ethics. Well, there were some that were being kind of developed towards the end of the 19th century, but people went into the business uh, usually, you know, as an apprentice, working, uh, you know, at the newspaper and kind of learning the trade, but there was no real sense of of, uh, professionalism, I would say, like Mm. there is today. How common were these amazing, fantastical stories? Did they appear uh, in every issue, or was it just an occasional thing? Well, I think, you know, I've looked at a lot of newspapers from the 1870s when I was doing the book on Custer's Last Stand, 
And I would say, you know, a lot of issues would have something that would be unusual in it or something that was done as kind of, you know, a sense of humor. But, you know, huge hoax stories like the moon hoax and that kind of stuff, I think, was uh, uh, fairly rare. But editors were looking for stuff that was unusual, and particularly, uh, you know, in the Penny Press era and then after the Civil War. During the Civil War, things were pretty serious and everybody was focused on war news. But uh, the post-Civil War era, the growth of cities after the Civil War, the growth of markets, journalism became a huge big business during the Civil War as uh, newspapers expanded to cover the war. So there was a lot of money to be made, a lot of competition. And Mm -hmm. so in the 1870s, 1880s, people were looking for, in the news business, they were looking for exciting stories and unusual stories. And there was a guy in St. Louis, Joseph McCullough, who was the editor of the St. Louis Globe, and later became, became the Globe Democrat, and he wrote an extensive guidebook for his reporters. And one of the things that he established was a snake bureau, and he wanted stories about snakes. And it didn't matter what they were, because people were interested in those kinds of things. And um, even if it was a fantastic story, uh, he didn't care. You know, as long as it was interesting, this uh, memo that he wrote to reporters, he just kind of jokingly said he drew the line at uh, what appeared in the Cincinnati newspaper where they had a story about a snake that uh, was uh, sucking milk from a cow like a calf would. And he said, I draw my line there. Uh, Might be believable in the Louisiana Senate, but not in St. Louis. That's funny because that's (laughs) literally folklore I've heard growing up is that snakes drink milk. It's still around. Yeah, it's still, it's still popular <laughs> yeah. folklore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but they had. I, I saw stories in the 1870s about like a kid who had uh, disappeared from home, and then they found him in a rattlesnake den, and he was petting all the snakes, and it, you know, cried when his uh, family rescued him because he wanted to go back to his pets. Kids love their rattles. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I was just going to ask you, Jim, with a lot of these stories. Were they supposed to be interpreted as facts, or were they, by and large, understood to be humorous or works of fiction? Well, I think, you know, it was uh, really left up to the reader, but I I think um, the readers could interpret it, you know, sometimes by the placement of the newspaper. Because, um, you know, until the late part of the 19th century, there was not a comics page, but newspapers would run a column of one-liners or brights or jokes or odd stories and stuff like that. And I think if you saw stories there, then you could kind of figure, well, you know, they're sending this with a nudge and a wink. And okay. you could just kind of kind of use your common sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as today, some people might take it as gospel, but I think a lot of people would look at it, oh, is this is just something humorous for us. Ah, but they've got to know the context, and if it's being quoted in a book... It's probably missing all that context. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you just have to get into kind of the spirit of the times they had. Uh, I think in some ways, you know, in the, the 19th century, they had uh, maybe a more ferocious sense of humor or laughed a lot of cruel humor and stuff like that. I know um, in uh, you know, researching Custer's last stand, you know, when he and uh, all these men were killed, in the battle with the the Sioux and Cheyenne, uh, almost immediately there were 
one-line jokes like uh, Custer's death with suicide, you know, spelled S I O U. And then there, there David was, Blake's heart. <laughs> there, there was a true story, uh, part of the truth uh, that he and a lot of his officers took out insurance uh, policies before the campaign. And then uh, somebody wrote a story that said, you know, um, the, the Lakota, the Sioux are going to bust up all the insurance companies in the United States. Some kind of joke like that about how all this, the insurance policies are being collected. And um, 1876 was a presidential election year. And one, one newspaper had a joke that said, uh, we hear that Sitting Bull is running for Congress from the Little Bighorn District. And he's running on a platform of reducing the size of the army. <laughs> so, okay, that's pretty wry. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so things like that's a, a different time, different sense of humor, and mm. um, again, I think you know a lot of people would understand what the newspaper was writing about, or the magazine, or what have you. I know those jokes roll, but they're they're hitting me pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Some, stuff, some stuff never never gets old, yeah. <laughs> but it's also something that, that you couldn't quite imagine, say, after 9-11. Right, right. Like five mm-hmm. days later, running uh, something like that. Because I remember after 9-11, I think uh, Gilbert Gottfried or some comedian said, it, said a joke about um, uh, the flights in New York and people booed him off the stage. Yeah, and, that's, know, that's a, a yelling too soon. it was a famous incident. Mm-hmm. I think that's when, if I remember correctly, that's when he went into uh, the aristocrats joke. Yeah, yeah. Which we will not be covering in this episode. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Whole another show. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested, you mentioned a, a code of ethics. Um, mm-hmm. When did journalism um, as a profession, I guess maybe I'm making assumptions even now, is there, I mean, I know like the doctors have a hypocritic oath mm-hmm. and do, do journalists have some sort of ethical oath or, or is that per newspaper you or whatever your venue is, does, do you abide by the ethical rules of those papers? Where, how, is there a, a common sort of guiding principle about truth in journalism? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing about journalism is you know, as opposed to medicine or uh, any other type of profession, there's there's no licensing. Like, you know, if you're going to be a doctor, you have to, to get a medical license. If you're going to be a lawyer, you have to pass a test, pass the bar, and so forth. But to be a journalist, you just have to hang out your shingle or get a website, you know, or a blog or what have you. You know, there's no licensing. And so there's no uh, body that can have a code of ethics and then force people to abide by it. But there are a number of professional groups. Um, the Society of Professional Journalists is probably the most well-known, and it has a code of ethics, and it has, uh, you know, main principles like, uh, you know, tell the truth as the, the number one principle. And most different uh, mainstream media companies will have their own code. And then there are also codes of ethics for different uh, professional groups for each media, like the American uh, Newspaper uh, Association and uh, Broadcast Associations and so forth. And the Public Relations Society of America has a code. But the problem is that you can't really enforce it because not everybody belongs to it or has to belong to it. 
and journalists also don't really want to be in the position of kicking other people out of the profession because there also is this idea that well you know in the united states yeah anybody can you know work for a newspaper or can write something or put something on a website who are we to tell them not to sure and that makes sense but is there any kind of social pressure maybe from within the industry itself to be ethical yes yes i think that i think there is you know and it uh uh, it starts even in journalism school and, uh, you know, working for the college newspaper and so forth. And um, I think the culture is very much that if you lie in print, if you plagiarize, if you steal somebody else's stuff, then you are, you know, kind of shunned in a sense. Um, right. So there is that kind of feeling. But again, it's not universal. And so somebody can, uh, you know, plagiarize somewhere, be accused of plagiarism, and then Somebody else might say, well, we're going to give them a second chance or maybe, you know, we'll, we'll let them work for us with the understanding, you know, they're going to be, you know, kind of writing fiction or, you know, a column instead of a straight news story or something like that. So there's no, again, without one body that can police this, you know, it's up to individuals and individual businesses sure. how to handle it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, so I know in the past... It, and maybe even now, but it not in not my hometown exactly. But I know that there was a time when there were papers that would be labeled like the Democrat or the Republican, and you would like you would know the slant of the newspaper's coverage based on the header or the title. Is that still going on? And is is uh, I mean now it seems like that sort of thing is it's known. Like like people talk. They've got reputations. They've got reputations for being of a particular way, and like you like have the New York Times. I think it has a a, a reputation for being a more liberal slash Democrat uh, paper. But then at the same time, they have columnists who have conservative views, and those columnists seem to get a lot of brunt of uh, complaints from the readership for being different. You know, I don't I don't understand exactly how. Uh, that banner of like you know uh, positioning. I don't understand how the political slants of newspapers are, uh, are managed, or is it something that uh, historically was neutrality of value? Maybe would be a better question. Has that always been a thing where that the newspaper would have a political slant, or has was there a, a, some golden age when newspapers tried to be neutral? That there, there's my question. I, I squeezed it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I think for um, for much of the history of American journalism, uh, the newspapers were uh, clearly labeled. Although the oddity is they might have a Democrat in the uh, flag, but then actually be a Republican newspaper, uh, or vice versa. And in the example I mentioned before, the St. Louis Globe Democrat was actually a Republican newspaper. But in the in the 19th century. In the post-Civil War era, during the Civil War, a lot of newspapers uh, would clearly state, you know, what party they supported, to the point that some, you know, in election years, would print a sample ballot on their front page every day during the campaign, you know, during the fall. You must vote for Rutherford B. Hayes, you know, for president because he's a Republican. Wow. You know, and on down the line. And uh, this was just accepted. It was normal. Really, I think it was an efficient system because most cities would have, you know, of any size would have, you know, three, four, five newspapers. You know, there's no TV. Uh, a lot of people would read more than one newspaper. 
And so even though the newspapers were clearly, you know, pushing one line, a reader could look at a couple of different newspapers and kind of piece things together and know uh, what he was getting. Since uh, World War II and the advent of television and people moving to the suburbs and so forth, the newspapers have uh, been dying off to where now there's only a couple of markets in the United States that have more than one competing newspaper, so you can't really have a Democrat or a Republican newspaper clearly labeled and say you're representing the whole population. So I think most newspapers try to market themselves as kind of neutral. But as you point out, most readers are astute enough to say, yeah, you know, the New York Times says it's all the news that fit to print or whatever it is, but we know they hate Trump, right? We know they are not, you know, a Republican newspaper. Mm-hmm. You know? But right, right now, I think most Journalists in the mainstream media would say our organization is trying to cover everybody fairly and that the editorial page is separate from the news columns. The news columns are supposed to be uh, as neutral or objective as we can make them. Do, do you have any insight? I've heard the president say several times that the New York Times is failing. Is there any evidence to support that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, I think it's uh, actually probably – succeeding and ironically i think it's succeeding because of uh the president because it's a very symbiotic relationship they both need each other um he can use them as a foil and then uh circulation has gone up quite a bit because of uh the controversy with his administration and the passion people feel for and against him you know so it's actually been kind of a good thing for the media when people are fighting i mean there's nothing like a good impeachment story you know to get uh you know journalist blood flowing and uh, to get people to tune in. You know, we haven't had such good times since uh, Clinton and Lewinsky. What? <laughs> During the Lewinsky scandal, you know, the, the public, they would poll and people would say, we're disgusted by this, you shouldn't cover it. But then, of course, every time, you know, Clinton was on the cover of a news magazine or whatever Lewinsky was, then it would sell out. And, you know, people are really interested in that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, people say, decry partisanship and they don't want to to read or you know watch controversy, but then it's kind of belied by uh, you know the the clicks on the internet and the the sales uh, that are going. That's kind of a long yeah. digression, but I think no, no, it's it's, uh, it's actually, the New York Times is going yeah. is doing okay. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a circus right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it is. It's interesting. I, I mean, I spent time in the Navy trying to cross-rate to journalists. So, Mm -hmm. and that was at a time when, um, it was before the internet really took off. So this would have been like 93, 94, uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit of 95. And, um, but they still had uh, wire service on the ship. And, you know, you would still take off an AP story and rewrite it, that kind of thing. But we also did our own, own journalism, you know, our own articles and coverage stuff. But um, when I got into IT work, one of the first things I noticed was that uh, web pages allowed anybody to have a platform. Um, and I think now maybe uh, search engines and social media mitigate a little bit who sees what. But anybody can put their message out. Whether you'll get eyes on it is a different question, right? And, and, oh, yeah. And it, it, there was a... a, a a great deal of, of despair in the journalism business as all of this change in how easy it was to publish 
came out. And, and I don't know, maybe you could give us some insight into how that has affected things, because it seems like now, um, I know there's a constant struggle uh, to deal with ad blockers and all kinds of things around people not wanting to see pop-ups and ads, yet advertising being the profit model for the media. How how has that sort of played out over the past? I, I've really not had my eye on it for maybe 15 years, I guess. So mm-hmm. I, I, do you have any insight into how, as a business, journalism is working out lately? Well, if I could, if I could solve that one, I wouldn't have to be a professor anymore. Oh, I don't. I, you don't have to have a solution. <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering what, what's but, the current. Oh, yeah. What's the state of the the, the despair? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh man, I should be positive since I'm a, a journalism, you know, uh, prof and such a team. But it has it has hurt. I think particularly at the local level. Like uh, when I was in the the newspaper business, I was working for a suburban newspaper. And we thrived and had a lot of readers, and we were able to cover, uh, you know, the county uh, government, the city government, the city schools, and so forth. And uh, we got all of our revenue from grocery ads and, um, you know, want ads, cars, and all that kind of stuff. And now a lot of that has migrated to the Internet. And so that has cut out um, a huge revenue source, at least for the newspaper business. And uh, I suspect for, for television as well as people are trying to eliminate commercials. I know I, I do, you know, and we'll DVR stuff and slip through the commercials. And, um, you know, without that, that revenue source, a lot of uh, media companies are really struggling. The, uh, the thought was in the early days of the Internet, well, we'll put our stuff on the web for free and the advertising will follow and, um, you know, people will... Uh, we'll just go on as before. We'll get ads on the Internet, and um, we'll get viewers. But what has happened is that we've trained people to get stuff for free on the web. Now newspapers are trying to recover by you know, putting stuff behind a paywall, but they're finding it's a real struggle to convince people to pay for stuff when they're trained to get it for free. And then also the ad revenue has not followed to, uh, to newspapers. You know, they're not getting the same amount of money Uh, from ads on the web that they did in print. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. 
climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming? Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So it, it has been quite a struggle, the change uh, to, the, to the internet. Yeah, it sounds like the changing models of uh, other industries too, like the music industry and book publishing industry. They're all exactly, exactly having yeah. troubles. And the thing that uh, I think a lot of journalists, I know I bemoan, is the lack of local coverage now because the newspaper uh, that that I worked for went under, you know, and a lot of newspapers don't have the resources now uh, to cover local school districts. So uh, I think. For democracy, for our country, we're in we're in trouble if we don't have people going to the local school board, going to the city hall, because then basically, you know, the governmental bodies can do whatever they want without anybody really knowing until it's a done deal, and then it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost too late. Point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah, we. I I, I live in a. It's not a small town. Ta- well, it's kind of a small town. But yes, it is. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's outside of Atlanta, so it's. It's. But there's this sort of suburban sprawl, so it feels like it's all one big yeah. connected mess. But we still have a. We used to have snake handlers down the street. Well, now, right. That's town. now that's my hometown. Yeah, that's that's still that's still a pretty small place. Well, that would be a good story. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it, it, it's got all the things uh, that the. Uh, St. Louis Snake Bureau wants, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we would want somebody on that. I, one of my favorite restaurants has been in business since 1945. It was opened by oh, G- yeah. GIs that, uh, you know, they, they got out of the army and, you know, opened up a restaurant and it's still still in business. Mm-hmm. And on the wall, they've got a, like, I forget, it's like a 10-year anniversary. So I think it's like 1955 newspaper uh, talking about their uh, 10-year anniversary. And it's also... You can see other content from the newspaper there. And it was things like they were announcing people had a birthday party. A family had a visitor from out of town. It's like <laughs> things. Yes, you would, I've seen things like that. You yeah. would never expect to see Seemingly that very mundane stuff. Yeah, but <laughs> you could really get a sort of a, a feel for what the town was like uh, True. at that, at that little window. Although you kind of can't. It's interesting. Like you'd get those stories about, and let's be blunt, these were stories about white people doing stuff. And what you wouldn't mm-hmm. see would probably be the stories about uh, local African American people, you know, being lynched or whatever. They, they, you know, I don't Segregation. even know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that it, it's a snapshot. It's not necessarily a, an accurate snapshot. But there probably would have been an African New- American newspaper in that town too. I bet. Okay. I, so. I know in where. I- where I grew up in St. Louis, there was. Well, that's a big city. My my Ooh. hometown yeah, probably that's true. back then probably only had like five thousand people. Atlanta certainly had a large and thriving African American community, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure they did. You know, that is really interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I, newspapers.com has tons and tons of digitized papers, but I haven't looked to see if they have uh, those kind of African American press as part of their digital archives. Be interesting to check. So mm-hmm. anyway, I I think I went on a long ramble there. I apologize, but um, there was there, uh, no worries. I'm gonna I'm gonna ramble off into to time for a second now that we're rambling. Okay, you wrote about Custer, 
and the coverage yeah. of of the Little Bighorn. What was it like to be a newspaper journalist, a reporter in the 1870s? What 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 sort of a job was that back then? Or were, did you get any insight into that? A little bit. I mean, uh, uh, the correspondents who went out west, I mean, it was like war correspondents today. They were on the front lines, and there was a the uh, AP correspondent was killed with Custer. So, as always, war reporting was dangerous, just like now. Wow. Um, it was not a college-educated job. So reporters were kind of uh, looked down upon then. It was more kind of a, a low-level job. Um, but then, as now, it attracted people who weren't necessarily interested in the money, but interested in the adventure, interested in, you know, a creative kind of work, you know, where you could write stuff. That's always been one of the appeals. And so I think that um, that was part of it. But, uh, again, you know, not making a lot of money, working long hours, a lot of pressure, no, um, you know, it's for with the rest of society, too. I mean, there's no Social Security, you know, if you're injured or you're retired or what have you. But I think the reporters were, again, similar to people who go into it today and that they have a sense of adventure, they have a sense of curiosity, and they, they want to be creative. So somebody doing correspondence back then, it's easy to forget, but I guess after – I forget what year it was, but I know by the time we get to the, the American Civil War, there's a, a wire service pretty broadly across the country. So if you – yeah, and if you wrote stories, would it be like as a correspondent, you would take your story to the wire service office and have it wired back? Is that how that would work? Yeah, you would go to the telegraph office. And, uh, you know, the telegraph was invented around 1844. The Mexican-American War was the first war where there were some telegraphic reports, but the, the country wasn't as wired as it was at the time of the Civil War. But at the time of the Civil War, um, depending upon where the battle was fought, you could ride to the telegraph office and then get your story telegraphed, and it would be in the paper the next day. So you actually, for the first time, had the problem where newspapers were actually a security threat because the correspondents had no, um, you know, nobody controlling them. They just went wherever they were. They weren't accredited or, you know, embedded, as it were, except in the fact that they, they did it themselves, you know, just showed up. And so they were reporting all kinds of stuff that would be considered a secret. And uh, Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, said he got his best intelligence reports from the New York newspapers. And let's see, I went off on a tangent there. But yeah, but you would go to the Telegraph, and uh, you know people would fight and do all kinds of nefarious things to be the guy who had access to the Telegraph. Um, there's all kinds of stories about a guy getting there first and then uh, giving um, the telegraph operator the New Testament and say, start transmitting this while I write my story. Just <laughs> he held the line. Wow. And then um, other stories where I forgot how this this went, but uh, I think uh, two reporters were riding together. It was something like this, heading towards the telegraph line. The one, one reporter uh, told Union soldiers that he was actually uh, a, a rebel spy or a guerrilla or something and actually had his friend arrested. I forget how he, he got into that. I was able to do that. But anyway, there was uh, no holds barred, you know, when you were trying uh, to be the first one to the telegraph. And there's another story that, that might be apocryphal, but these two reporters were not trained going somewhere. 
and then the tra- there was a train crash in the dark, and then um, uh, they were scrambling around, and uh, each reporter found the other guy had his hands in his pockets trying to steal the other guy's notes. Wow. So they were <laughs> very competitive and, and yeah. fighting to get uh, their story in first to the Telegraph. And in 1876, during the Little Bighorn, uh, that was fought uh, in the Montana Territory, and it was like about two days' ride to the nearest telegraph. And so actually the first, the battle was on June 25th, and it didn't hit most U.S. newspapers until July 6th because the reporter on the scene was killed. And so then the first news didn't come until the rescue troops had arrived to the besieged remnants of Custer's command, and then they sent out a dispatch, and uh, a scout had to ride you know, day and night to get the news to the, the telegraph. Incredible. Did they pay bonuses for, they must have paid, there must have been some scoops. incentive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paid bonuses to the reporters? Right, for, for getting the story first, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's how, um, just like today, you would get, you know, promoted or get, you know, a full-time job, let's say, instead of just being a correspondent or a stringer uh, to where you're paid uh, per piece. And then, uh, as today, too, you know, you work in smaller markets. Um, the guy who uh, found uh, David Livingston, the missionary in Africa, I don't remember if you're familiar with that story about Stanley and Livingston. Okay, 1876 was also the same same year. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most famous lines in literature, or in journalism, anyway. But Stanley uh, was a guy who was maybe kind of typical of uh, journalists of that era, although he had a lot of background in his life that was just really kind of odd. He was an orphan and brought up in in an orphanage in uh, Wales. And then when he uh, got out of there at 16, he uh, worked his way to the U.S., to New Orleans, and uh, knocked around working for a merchant. But the Civil War broke out. He's working in Arkansas, and he wants to attract the attention of um, a, a lady in the town. And you couldn't get anywhere with anybody unless you were in the Army. So he enlisted, even though he didn't care who won in the Confederate Army, captured at Shiloh, then entered the Union Army to um, get out of the POW camp. They had a program that if you joined the Union Army, they would uh, parole you. And then he got ill and was never able to fight uh, for the Union Army. He was discharged, and then he went to New York, worked for a little bit, then enlisted in the Union Navy. And then while he was on shipboard, he wrote a couple of stories about a naval battle that he was in, sent them back to New York, and, and they were published. And so he decided this would be a good career for him. And he wanted to work in New York, but they said no go to the, uh, get experience in the smaller markets. So he went to, to St. Louis and was working as an occasional there, which was what we call a stringer today, paid per piece, and then built up enough of a portfolio that then he could go back to New York and get a tryout there. They still wouldn't hire him, but they gave him a tryout, and then he, he um, was eventually able to get onto the staff of the, the New York Herald. So he was an example of a guy who loved adventure, uh, he didn't really love to write because he often wrote about how difficult it was to write. You know, he liked the attention of having written. 
I guess like a lot of people do that today. But he didn't. The act of writing itself was really, really painful. Arduous, yeah. The tyranny of the blank page. I think we're all familiar with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and Jim, I was wondering at what time did photographs start appearing in newspapers? I don't know the exact date, but it was around uh, the latter part of the 19th century, like around the 1890s and so forth. They had the very first ones. Wow. And then um, in the 1900s, then it really began to take off and so forth. I mean, you had photography was first invented before the Civil War. And so, of course, we have all those pictures from the Civil War, but the technology wasn't developed that you could actually reproduce them in a newspaper. They could do woodcuts and drawings based on the photographs, and they would produce them in uh, illustrated newspapers, but they couldn't reproduce the photographs. Yeah, I'm not, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not not sure what the, the technical names uh, for that or how. Yeah, how it's it tangential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, they, I think was it they had to develop, yeah. develop the halftone process. Is that what it's called? I think that's the kind of thing I'll look up and throw in the show notes because that might be kind of a, mm-hmm. a rabbit hole. Monster Talk. This episode of Monster Talks brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I've used it for so long. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I listen to it all the time. I use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books that we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My Audible recommendation this week is They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker. This is a foundational text of UFO lore and introduces the reader to the kind of fandom and amateur academic work of ufology as well as to the mystery and lore around agencies and mysterious figures who try to suppress UFO news, at least according to Barker. This story will give you a creepy introduction to the world of the men in black before those characters spin off to their own series, or at least become a standard part of UFO lore. Barker himself is a strange and enigmatic figure whose work is shaped by his whimsical, prankster nature. His awareness that much of the stuff he writes about he didn't believe or couldn't believe. But yet his finances depended upon selling it. And by the secrets about his life that society was not ready to embrace. If you're interested in UFOs, you owe it to yourself to read They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And the Audible edition is a great way to consume it. With Audible, I was able to listen while I did chores, mowed the grass, and shopped for groceries. I can move seamlessly from my phone to my tablet to my computer, and Audible keeps up with my progress. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I'm happy to make Peter Law's book, The Frighteners, my suggestion for this month. To download your free audiobook while also supporting our show, Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster talk. Now, two two topics that I, I wrote you that I wanted to include. One is that... Thanks to the U.S. Navy, I've had the opportunity to travel the world, um, and uh, and so I, I got to see 
what the newspapers look like in other countries, and it was quite different. How radically different is the United States free press compared to other countries in your experience? Yeah, I think the the U.S. press, you know, probably, you know, broadly has similar freedoms to uh, most of the Western countries and, uh, you know, also including, you know, uh, the developed countries in Asia, you know, Japan and so forth. Uh, so they all have, you know, a fair level of press freedom. But, you know, in the United States, we have the, the First Amendment. And so I think a, a good case can be made that we have one of the freest presses uh, in the world. And then, you know, a, a number of countries still have, uh, you know, they might have a free press clause in their constitution, but it's not really enforced. And, uh, you know, journalists are murdered or, or uh, you know, intimidated and so forth. That's that's the one that bugs me. That's the one that's really bothering me lately is uh, you can have free press, but if the journalists get murdered when they write something that the, that the government doesn't like. Not exactly free. Not really a free press. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't matter if it's in your constitution or not. If, in fact, uh, journalists are intimidated, you know, um, from publishing or are killed, you know, and that, that still happens, yeah. you know, in uh, much of the world. But we did, it was interesting, we had a, a master's thesis done this year. One of our students is from Saudi Arabia, and he was um, studying the Saudi Arabian press because they have an initiative uh, from their government to strengthen press freedoms in that country. And uh, so he looked at uh, the Saudi Arabian press, he compared coverage of the Gulf War back in 1990 to the, um, the guerrilla war that they're fighting in, uh, I believe it's in Sudan, is that right? Um, supporting the rebels, or no, are they supporting the government? I'm really misspeaking here, but anyway, but he was comparing these two situations, and, and uh, he concluded that the, the press was a little bit freer now. So that's kind of a kind of an anecdote, but it's... Uh, it's an interesting example of how press systems are different and how uh, oftentimes countries will try to emulate what we're doing. And um, I know uh, I taught in Mozambique um, oh, getting on quite a while ago, and that was back in 2000, but they didn't have a journalism school there. And we went over there to help them establish a journalism program because they wanted to develop Western-style press. Wow. So what was that like? That was really uh, an excellent experience for me. It was uh, eye-opening. The students were really, really enthusiastic, um, really appreciative to have somebody come over from the United States and work with them, and they were very enthusiastic students, and uh, it was really, really great. And they were really sincere and, uh, you know, didn't take for granted that they, they were able to go to college. Now, that's the southeast coast of Africa. I've never been there before, but it looks beautiful from what I've seen. Yeah, it is. They have some, some uh, outstanding uh, beaches. and uh, Yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience. And have they really uh, developed that in, in this time? Have they continued to, to work with that and, uh, and really grow? I, I, keep, I keep in touch with uh, a few of the people there. Um, as far as I know, the, the program um, at Eduardo Monlon University, they're still uh, teaching journalism, I believe. But yeah, in fact, uh, one of the, the women who was in the program uh, got her master's uh, is now, just now, uh, going for a PhD. And so I heard from oh, her great. she wants to teach. So Great. So I'm not prepared to go back to, to college 
right now, but I, I do have a thesis. <laughs> I, I, I've kind of suspect, based on what we've talked about today, that a lot of the changes in journalism trends are happening organically over time through just sort of trends based on a combination of capitalism or, or and governmental control and pressure and public perception and the occasional really powerful personality that gets involved in media. Mm -hmm. So with all those different pressures, I imagine that the way things shakes out, especially in America where there's not a government press per se, that these trends are, are really more of a natural selection type process. Is that fairly accurate? Well, yeah. I mean, you, I think you've touched on there's so many different factors going on. I would think that one of the most dominant is our market forces in the United States because um, we don't have a government-funded press, you know, like in some countries. And so newspapers, television stations have to have a way to make money, as, you know, we'll tell students, you know, the news business is a business. You know, if nobody reads your stuff or watches your show, you know, it's a, it doesn't exist. I mean, some people are kind of trying to experiment with, you know, funded news organizations and so forth, but I'm not sure if that model will really work in the United States. But I think it's just, uh, you know, like you said, it's going to be an organic process to see how, how we go forward. Um, but one thing I'm, I'm confident of is uh, people need and want news. They want to know what's going on. I mean, uh, one journalism historian said that it's interesting in every language in the world, there's some kind of phrase, what's new? And so it's really a need for people to know what's going on and, uh, and to sort through uh, the complex facts of what the, the government is doing and so forth. But it is interesting, too, that, you know, we don't have necessarily, you know, a government newspaper per se, but one thing I know from from doing research on the, the presidency is that, you know, uh, since Clinton, uh, the White House certainly has become more and more uh, controlling of its own messaging and has developed, you know, basically its own television channel. They have the whitehouse.gov website and they put their videos up and um, they have a White House photographer. The presidents have really discovered that, you know, they don't necessarily need uh, the press to carry their message that they can get it out there through, I mean, as the current president has shown through, you know, Twitter, he can reach it. I am not a journalism wonk, but I've seen criticism around the press corps that in order to preserve their access to the president, that it's been affecting the messaging coming out. Is that, is that, is that a pretty big concern or is that my imagination? Well, um, I think I think it's a valid concern. It's always been kind of a, a worry, whether it's the president or covering the police chief. That you know, you ha if you're the the beat writer, you have to have a certain relationship in order to be able to get stories. You know, um, right now it's so hugely confrontational between the White House uh, press corps and the president. I don't think they're really trying to butter him up at all. Um, no, it seems pretty confrontational at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I don't know. I think they're they're pretty much oppositional right now, I would say. So I don't think we have to really worry. They're kind of 
kind of lapdog. I guess either extreme can be problematic if 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 they're too much on the same page. That's one problem, and if they're too much oppositional, that's a different kind of challenge. So, yeah, that's an intrigue. It's, I, I think that's a problem that uh, is always going to be there, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, gone on for as long as, uh, you know, presidents have been dealing uh, with reporters. I mean, uh, you go back to, to even George Washington and uh, railing against newspapers and uh, throwing almost a temper, temper tantrum uh, in front of Thomas Jefferson when he was, I guess, his Secretary of State, and uh, saying that he couldn't believe what this one uh, newspaper was writing about him, and then the guy had the the nerve to send him three free copies, like he really wanted to read the stuff anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Jefferson, you know, and a lot of other people, you know, from then on, they kind of picked up, they would either, you know, find a sinecure for a reporter, and so he'd have a government job, and then could... Uh, start a newspaper, or they would have their favorite reporters and feed them stories and so forth. So um, it's always been a back and forth over the years. As you know, uh, an administration will find a favorite reporter to work with, somebody that they can talk to, and then try and freeze out or some way, you know, intimidate uh, you know people they don't like. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think what's happened here is uh, this is one of those topics I'm wildly curious about. And so I've accidentally driven this interview all over the place. I apologize, Karen. I apologize, no, Jim. <laughs> that's okay. I, yeah, I think it's interesting so, that even having the free press here, that there's still a lot of influence and persuasion that's taking place with just competing factions and groups. But um, I wanted to ask another – I wanted to go back to the strange uh, strange stories topic, and I guess you wanted to briefly too? Yeah. Like, Let's stay on brand, yeah. right? <laughs> but yeah. I just wanted to ask, I know we're focusing uh, primarily on the United States here, but uh, is with in regards to strange stories um, that, that were written historically, was that a practice that was going on in other Anglophone countries too, like uh, the UK and Australia and Canada, or was it, I mean, I imagine, or, I mean, we have heard of stories coming out of the UK, but uh, in general, was this just something that was happening globally in English-speaking countries? Yeah, well, I, I, I must say, you know, I'm not really a, an expert on the international press, but sure. the, um, the United States press has always, you know, its roots are from Great Britain. I mean, the mm-hmm. first American journalists had emigrated uh, from Great Britain, and so there's always been a, a fair similarity. So the, the same types of stories... Uh, that would be, you know, popular in the United States would be popular in uh, in Great Britain as well. And um, I know we were talking about Stanley earlier, and uh, on one of his expeditions to Africa, he was also working for one of the London papers as well as the New York Herald. And uh, he would send back stuff um, about uh, mysterious animals or tribesmen in Africa uh, that he hadn't seen, but they would hear the noises uh, from them, and he wrote about some uh, a tribe of pygmies that he had heard rumors about that um, lived only on elephant meat and uh, used poison darts that, you know, one hit and you were dead, and uh, talked about how a lot of the guys in his expedition refused to go through uh, certain areas because of fear of these uh, warriors. And so that was published in... Uh, 
the British newspapers as well. And he was writing for that audience. I want to warn people against necessarily taking these older stories at face value. And I guess my question is, what kind of things should people consider when they're looking at these old newspaper stories, especially about stuff that's weird or mysterious or offbeat? How, how would they get the context they need to better understand what this story is? Well, I, I think, you know, a, an individual story, um, you know, like I think you and I had, had talked to you and sent me a copy about uh, cowboys finding um, a prehistoric monster or something in Arizona and uh, bring it into town. And uh, stories like this, um, you, know, you have to kind of read the tone of the story. And oftentimes there would be code phrases like, we believe or we heard, and kind of almost disavowing it. And that's kind of like they're, uh, the editor is letting you know, well, we don't really know whether this is true or believe it, but we're just printing it for interest. And mm -hmm. also if you, if you look at the context around the story, uh, because a lot of times these things will be put on a page where there will be a lot of unusual stories or humor things. And then I think that's also a clue to um, let the reader uh, decide, or, or let the reader know, rather, that maybe this isn't a serious story. But again, you know, in the, the context of the 19th century, you know, they printed everything they had as long as it was interesting, and then kind of threw it out there, and you as the reader kind of uh, would decide whether to believe it or not. And, and again, oftentimes they would say stuff like, we don't know if this is true or not, but we're just passing this along. And there was an editor for the Chicago Times, uh, Wilbur Story, owned the newspaper. And during the Civil War... Wait, his name was Story and he owned the yeah. newspaper? S-T-O-R-E-Y. Aptonym, uh, nominative determinism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but... But at that time, the Chicago Times was, was one of the biggest newspapers in, in the United States. And uh, he sent his reporters a message. You know, when you're going out to cover the, the war, uh, send all the news uh, you can. If you don't have any news, send rumors. And <laughs> so that was kind of <laughs> the philosophy, really, of the time. You know, just send us anything. Just send us something. And so I think, you know... Uh, for readers who are researching this or looking at old newspapers, they have to take that into context, that they would print anything as long as it was interesting. And uh, you had to just kind of gauge yourself whether you thought this was believable or possible or what have you. And it's interesting, too. I think this is also a human need or desire that is goes on even today, because this this might seem quite off topic, but I'm a big fan of my college football team, University of Missouri, and they fired their coach. And so now they're going through a coach search. And so on this one website, they have a list of possible coaches, but there's no real news going on, just rumors. And I was struck by a number of people who post this site and say, just print something, just tell us something. Even if it's not, not true, just give us a rumor to chew on. And so... It's an attitude, you know, that I think is, uh, you know, common among a lot of readers, you know, whether it's the 19th yeah. century or now. Just yeah. give us something to entertain us. Yeah, I think even today there's um, truth to that and that uh, you 
have to do your, your research and think critically about everything you read. Oh, yeah, yeah. And again, I think, you know, in the 19th century, in some ways, I think they were more critical because they had so many newspapers to choose from. And they knew that newspapers had a certain angle, you know, that they were clearly a Democrat or Republican newspaper. And so they would know that if it was a story critical of, um, you know, a Democratic or a Republican politician, that maybe to take this with a grain of salt. I mean, again, you know, uh, to go back to the Little Bighorn, uh, that happened in an election year. And so very quickly, all the stories about the battle and who was to blame for it took on a political aspect. And some of the stories were just outrageous. Um, the president was a Republican, was Grant, and Custer was a Democrat. And so the newspapers kind of presented the story depending upon their, their politics. And uh, Democratic newspapers would blame Grant and say that he had sent Custer to his death um, that he didn't provide enough troops. And one newspaper went so far to say that um, Sitting Bull had visited the White House and Grant had given him a gun as a gift, and that was the same gun that was used to kill Custer. Wow. And so, wow. you know, when you're reading this in 1876, would you really believe that, or would you think like, oh, you know, they're just, mm -hmm. you know, exaggerating it. And the thing is that a lot of this stuff, too, there would be like a grain of truth to it. There actually was a native uh, chief who had gone to the White House and visited Grant, and he was named Sitting Bull, but there were actually two uh, chiefs who were named Sitting Bull at that time. <laughs> Confusing. Yeah. But anyway, there was all kinds of extreme stuff being, being printed, and I think uh, readers were able to kind of sort it through, and I think that's what we have to do today you know, looking at our own media. And I guess we don't really have any record of the sort of on-the-street conversations. I mean, a newspaper story comes out today, and you can literally go see the conversations because of social yes, media. Yeah. And and I can certainly remember lots of people arguing over coffee in like my local breakfast place, you know, before social media. And uh, I assume that that was the case back then, that people would take these stories and discuss them on the street or or at the barbershop or wherever. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's been a long tradition. Um, what you did have was, you know, they had extensive letters to the editor pages. So you would have really long letters, like almost oh, stories yeah. of themselves, where people would debate this stuff. And so you could get kind of a sense of maybe the public reaction that way. So, so somewhere out there, uh, preserved, is the first time someone wrote, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we can only find the very first one from that, that newspaper that I mentioned, uh, Public Occurrences in 1690. It had four pages, but one was blank. And it was blank so that you could add your own commentary and pass it around. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it, That's fantastic. So it's really, it was a coffee shop kind of culture. Very, very few people, you know, would subscribe to a newspaper in the colonial era or the, you know, early 19th century. And so, you know, they would get them at a coffee house or something or trade them around. And again, you know, if you had your own news, you know, you added to it, or at least that was the intent of the publisher. Wow. I'm married to a notorious doctor's office magazine thief. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but did you have any other follow-up questions, Blake? 
Uh, probably another hour's worth, but I, I think we've, another we've time. probably taken enough of Jim's time. <laughs> this has been really it interesting. It really has. And, and Jim, we have a final question that we like to ask all of our guests. What's your favorite monster? Well, I would think it would be the Loch Ness Monster. Okay, Ooh, that's the a good classic one. one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and I couldn't tell you why, except, you know, maybe my grandfather was from Scotland, but it always, it just seemed like, I guess, you know, there could be something there. The water looks so dark and so forth. And so I've always, you know, wanted to go there, you know, and stare at the lake and see if something comes up. And uh, I was talking to my son about this the other day, you know, because he reaches, researches stuff like this, like Chupacabra or something like that, and uh, said, you know, what do you think? Loch Ness Monster, you think that's real? And then he you know, went on to a five-minute discourse. No, it couldn't be real because the lake is too cold or whatever, you know. Well, no food source. But, but anyway, but I still, you know, think maybe it's there. Who knows? That's a much better answer. I was afraid that, like many papers, you would say, well, I know the answer, but uh, it's behind a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been so interesting. And we'll put a link to your books in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to, to link out to you? Uh, no, just, I guess, uh, shameless publicity. I'm, I'm writing another book that's going to be out in the, in the uh, fall, next fall. Uh, it's a biography okay. of Custer, but Custer, uh, I'm making the argument that he was actually more of an artist than a soldier, that he always had this uh, idea that he wanted to be a writer or an actor or something like that. And he had, of course, written his own, written a book, and he'd written a lot of newspaper articles. So I think it's kind of an interesting take on his life. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Very interesting. Well, we will load the show notes up with these links uh, to your current books that are published. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can put a link to the University of North Texas Journalism Program. That's great. And uh, anything else you think of, send me an email, and I'll make sure it gets in there. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks. All right, Thank good you. Night. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. James Mueller, Associate Dean of Journalism at the University of North Texas, discussing how to interpret historical newspapers and modern ones as well. It's always been incumbent upon the reader to think critically about what they're reading, and an old saying I've heard is that the news is always accurate until they're reporting about you. So given that, is there anything you can do? Well, here's a few suggestions. One, read past the headline. Headlines are not the story and often aren't even accurate to the story's content. A visit to Facebook or Twitter will show you that if you actually read the article, you are already giving the story more effort than 90% of the people who are commenting on it. Number two, check your sources. Are there named sources in the story? Are there more than one? Are the sources people who are reputable and likely to be telling the truth? Number three, is the source biased? There are papers and news outlets that strive for accuracy, and there are outlets that strive for a particular angle. Consider that when evaluating the story. Number four, what's the context of the story? As mentioned in this interview, some stories are on pages with various gossip and opinion. And is this thing you're reading an opinion piece? Is it a work of fiction? In modern times, there are many sites that are set up for satire or highly slanted propaganda releases that look at a glance like a real, reputable news site. You have to be cautious. Number five, fact-checking sites. There are numerous fact-checking sites that are worth looking into when you see what seems to be an outrageous story. 
Those are just a few guidelines. Now, one interesting thing we didn't cover in this episode is the effect of social media on sharing false narratives. It's so easy to click that share button or that like button. You see something you agree with, you want others to see it, so you share. It is not in the financial interests of Twitter or Facebook to slow down the sharing of stuff, even if it's false. It's up to you to decide if accuracy is a value you care about. My reading into behavioral economics suggests that a really simple way to slow down the spread of nonsense would be to have one extra button to click when you share something. If you had a little pop-up that said, are you sharing this because you believe it to be true? It would probably be enough of a tap on the brakes to make many people take a moment and think before they shared something. Probably. But that will never happen because social media is not there to help you get the accurate news. It's there to help you see advertising. In the end, the accuracy of your understanding of the news is dependent upon you taking the time to think for yourself. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. We love to talk about monsters in ways that promote critical thinking, inspire scientific curiosity, and help us understand not just the creatures, but ourselves. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please take a moment to leave a positive rating and review on iTunes. Five-star reviews help us show up on the iTunes rating lists and to reach new listeners. Monster Talk is a Patreon-supported podcast. At patreon.com forward slash monster talk, you can subscribe to an extended commercial-free version of the show for as little as $1 a month. We also have a Monster Talk Facebook group where we have an active community of Monster Talk enthusiasts as well as monster lovers who just wandered in from the cold and found a warm place to relax. Won't you join us? Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Special thanks to Sean Parks for his work editing this episode. And thanks to each of you for listening. House presentation. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore.